Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can find me on Twitter at XBorderTax. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talk, we're in our D.C. studio, where I'm excited to be joined by Elizabeth Nelson. Elizabeth is an international tax partner in our Washington National Tax Services practice, and most importantly, Elizabeth, one of my go-to people on all things foreign tax credits. Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. So we finally, finally, as a pre-Christmas treat, got the foreign tax credit regulations. The issue that many U.S. taxpayers were facing were the fact of whether this new global intangible low taxed income, which we talked about several podcasts ago when we got our first set of regulations, that was not really the minimum tax that maybe Congress described as such. And that companies that were paying greater than 13.125 of blended foreign taxes in their tested income were still being subject to tax in the U.S. on their global intangible low taxed income. So maybe before we even dive into these new regs, can you help our audience understand what the heck this whole expense apportionment thing is? Like why are companies that are paying more than 13.125 actually still paying U.S. tax? So the regs confirm that it's a separate limitation category, just like all the other separate limitation categories, like general or passive basket. And so there is expense apportionment that has to be done to figure out the foreign tax credit limitation for the guilty basket. And when you do that, you are reducing the ability to take a foreign tax credit in that basket. So every dollar of expense that you're apportioning in the guilty basket is reducing your ability to use credits and can result in residual U.S. tax. Yeah, those expenses that occur in the U.S. are typically primarily interest expense, R&D, so research and development type expenses, and then stewardship amongst others. But those are the primary three. And I think interest expense was really the one that appeared to be hitting the most number of taxpayers based on comments and that we've heard publicly and through the the proposed regulation process. And so it was really interest expense that is incurred in the U.S. that happens to get apportioned, that has to be apportioned against these various baskets that you described. And it's this interest expense in the U.S. as it gets apportioned against the guilty basket, then companies are not able to utilize the foreign tax credits or potentially all of the foreign tax credits in that guilty basket. That's right. And interest expense is apportioned based on assets. And so you're taking your assets in the U.S. group and you're putting them into the different baskets. They could be U.S. source. They could be foreign source. They could be in the guilty basket, general and passive baskets. And a lot of CFC stock is going to end up in the guilty basket under the stock characterization rules and will pull a lot of interest expense into that basket. That's right. So the rules say you have to determine what is the amount of your foreign assets over your worldwide assets kind of attached to each of these respective categories. And when and you used to be able to adopt to use the fair market value method, that is that's no longer that's, that's gone. gone. That's gone. And so the way I always thought about interest expense apportionment was that this textbook value method, I assume when they came up with this, was kind of a proxy of fair market value. In other words, you look at what's the the tax basis that you have in right. all of your assets. 
And then to the extent that those assets constitute or are constituted of stock, then you have to add the earnings and profits to that basis in the stock. And the way I think about that is like, well, what, what did you invest in it? And then how much has it earned? That's a proxy for the value of that particular company. Right. And that, that earnings and profit addition, which people call the E&P bump, can be very large because it happens to it consists of both untaxed earnings, but it can be previously taxed earnings. So earnings you picked up under guilty, under subpart F. Um, so it's all your earnings that are in the system earned by CFCs are bumping up the value of the CFC stock at the U.S. shareholder level. Right. And so with our the 965, with the toll charge that we've also spoken about here on the cross-border tax talks, the we now have this massive E&P bump that mm-hmm. most companies that had deferred earnings offshore had E&P that wasn't subject to U.S. tax. And so that is driving everybody's foreign asset ratio up. And plus with the fact that now you have to use the tax book value method, there are plenty of old school U.S. companies where most of their U.S. assets are very depreciated and obviously outside stock basis doesn't depreciate. Right. And so that's what I think the, the challenge for a lot of companies, they chose to use the fair market value method if they were older school U.S. companies. There were a number of fact profiles, but that certainly was one. Right. And so now those companies are kind of stung by the new regime and they have this E&P bump and now the outside stock basis plus this massive 965 that goes into the E&P bump. Right. So they're, they're probably, their ratios are probably shifted way towards foreign source assets and away from U.S. assets, having to go to the textbook value method. So as we've been waiting for these regulations, a number of us have hypothesized various things maybe that the uh, Treasury could have done to, to make the architecture of the rules maybe closer to a minimum tax, or at least I think hurt some of the pain of the expenses being a portion of the guilty basket and you're paying a lot of foreign tax still being subject to guilty to low taxed income when it's not really low tax. One of the things that I know we had you know, kicked around and, and, and you saw many articles and people discussing was, first of all, should this 965 ENP potentially be kicked out of the, the calculation? Treasury did not take that route. No, they didn't. There were um, other questions with respect to, well, now because we have untaxed earning, potentially untaxed DNP, which I remind you know some of our clients that a 10% return on the, the tax basis of your depreciable tangible assets may not be that much. Mm-hmm. But we now have this at least income that can come back to the U.S. that's tax-free under 245 right. cap A. So there was a question of, okay, well, what do we do with that income? Right. And then there was the, the other issue just with guilty in general with the fact that you include your entire tested income, but then in the U.S., Section 250 allows you to deduct half of that. And that's how they really get to that you know, 10% or 10.5% rate with 80% foreign tax credit to get to the 13%. Right. And so there was a question, well, what do you do with the 250 deduction? So Elizabeth, how has Treasury resolved this conundrum? So they, in, in terms of the 965 PTI, as you said, they, they summarily rejected, you know, excluding that from the E&P bump. It's in the E&P bump. So um, not much to do with that. So whatever stock gets characterized as a guilty basket, you treat um, the portion of the guilty inclusion that's offset by a 250 deduction, so that proportionate 
<clears throat> amount gets treated as, as an exempt asset, and then it gets backed out of the asset apportionment fraction that you use for expense apportionment. So the result of that is that you get less interest expense apportioned to the guilty basket. So it gives some relief. Um, I'd say on the other side, though, they felt compelled, I think, to also do that with FDII. So you could have a mix of assets, right, generating FDII, US source and foreign source, and the amount of that FDII inclusion that's offset by 250 deduction, those assets that produce that income get reduced as well um, and treated, part of the asset gets treated as exempt and gets backed out of the asset apportionment fraction. So it's an offsetting um, detriment, I think, to the benefit of the get to the guilty basket if you have US source FDII assets. That's right. So let's unpack a little bit of that because so for the foreign derived intangible income, Many U.S. companies receive royalties, let's say, for example, from either third parties or related parties. We know that from the related parties, that's a general basket, but we'll, we'll come to that in a minute. And then that royalty income for you know foreign source royalties would be presumably subject to, to FDII. Oftentimes that comes with withholding taxes, right, particularly mm -hmm. if it's in the form of royalties. So we've got credits that are going into that basket, presumably general basket, mm -hmm. you know, obviously not in the guilty basket, but presumably the, the general basket. And so now to the extent that we have exempt income associated with the foreign derived intangible income, so we get that section 250 deduction, you know, we end up having to reduce those assets, right? Mm -hmm. Or reduce the, the, the asset ratio, you know, and so that creates this a potential really adverse impact, you know, for those potentially withholding taxes. Right. I mean, it depends on what assets, again, in the U.S. group are producing FDII um, as to whether or not there's a detriment to this reduction in the guilty basket of the assets that are characterized in the guilty basket. But you really have to model out what the effect is going to be because you can't just take the interest expense that was apportioned to the guilty basket and, and have it, you know, multiply it by 50%. And come up with the answer of what the exempt method is giving you, the benefit mm. it's giving you. You have to rerun your whole interest expense apportionment calculation because there's another part of this where you're, you know, pulling out interest expense from the baskets because you may treat um, part of your stock as um, 245 cap A. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that because because there's going to be a pool of earnings and mm -hmm. you know some amount. Um, presumably that companies will repatriate after they've gotten back their 965 PTI and their guilty PTI, but there will be presumably be some amount mm -hmm. what, that is truly the territorial system DRD that we get when we bring back those particular foreign earnings. Yeah. How do they deal with the foreign tax credit allocation with respect to, to that piece? So there's, there's a provision in the statute that says you, you know, you apportion, uh, expenses, allocating a portion of expenses to that to that asset that produces 245 cap A income, and then you disregard it for purposes of calculating your FTC limit. So what they do is whatever stock gets characterized to the what they're calling the 245 cap A subgroup um, pulls interest expense essentially and maybe some other deductions, but mainly interest expense to that subcategory and then that is totally disregarded. So it's taken out of the numerator of all the other baskets, including guilty, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And then the detriment to that is that you're adding that expense to the denominator of all the baskets. So you're increasing the denominator means you have less limitation in the guilty basket. Mm -hmm. I mean, overall, it should be a benefit. 
Um, but there is kind of less of a benefit because you've got to increase your denominator in the guilty basket. Yeah. So, I mean, it's where you got to model. I mean, it's just amazing the right. complexity to be able to, to model these things. A any other kind of notes of interest on, ex on the expense apportionment in general? What about R&D, um, stewardship? Did we get m much, if any, insight on any of those? <laughs> Um, we, you know, they did not address uh, expense apportionment um, other than really interest expense in the regs that came out. They asked for comments and people should comment because uh, there is some, you know, application of the 250 approach that you can do in the R&E expense apportionment space. And so people should comment on that because I think they should also be giving relief um, similar to what they did for interest expense in for R&E expense apportionment. Yeah, certainly makes sense from a policy perspective. Right. All right. So let's maybe move to, to basketing. Um, this was another hotly debated topic for us international tax nerds on whether related party interest and royalties from CFCs were going to be guilty basket. So uh, or our general basket look through. So under the historic system where we had the general basket and the passive basket, any type of dividends, interest, royalties from related CFCs would generally be looked through. Mm -hmm. And assuming all of those companies were doing active things, active business things, then that was all general basket income. So with the new regime now, our global intangible low taxed income is now at all of the CFCs. We know that that tested income is computed. You aggregate all those CFCs together, you compute that tested income. And so the thought was, is that if you have interest or royalties that are being paid from those CFCs, reducing tested income, that that should be guilty income when it's received in, in the U.S. Did, did we get that result? We didn't get that. <laughs> no? <laughs> so right. the regs say, all over the regs, preamble and the provisions, that there is no guilty basket at the CFC level. I think everybody thought that. So that was confirmed. Um, and, and the point there, just to unpack that, is that all because it's a U.S. shareholder level concept right, that right. even though it's tested income, it's it's tested income at the U.S. shareholder. Right. Because you're aggregating all that tested income from all their CFCs right at the U.S. shareholder level. You're reducing it by the deemed intangible return. All that is done at the U.S. shareholder level. So it's not it's not guilty income at the CFC level. So at the CFC level, it's it's tested income. So it could be in the general basket. It could be in the passive basket. Um, could be foreign or U.S. source, right? So that that's confirmed um, when you look at the 904 regs that were issued. And so on that basis, they they really didn't feel like I think they could give look through to interest and royalty payments from CFCs. They also I think took a close look at the statutory language for look through, and really decided that it is a passive income look through. And so you look through to the passive basket at the CFC level for payments and characterize those as passive income at the U.S. shareholder level, but you don't do that for any other basket. So when you receive a payment, you're really deciding if it's not passive, what kind of income is it? When, where, you know, it can't be branch basket because you also can't have that at the CFC level. Mm -hmm. um, was it active, you know, income that would be in the general basket? And I think a lot of these payments are going to end up in the general basket at the U.S. shareholder level, but certainly not in the guilty basket. 
Yeah, so it, it unpack that a little bit for us, because before we would kind of look through if there were multiple tiers of entities, and, and then we'd say, well, that payment was because it was earned by that CFC as good general basket income, that therefore it was general basket. But explain that a little bit more as far as, because now you, you you first look to see if it's whether it's passive, right? And right. then And then how do you end up looking through? So the way that we used to conceptualize the look-through rule is we looked to the expense and what basket at the CFC level that expense was allocated or portioned against to then characterize the income received by the payee. And so you're looking through to the basketing at the CFC level. And that's not really how the rule works now. Mm -hmm. You do that for passive income. But the rest of the income that gets paid, it just gets characterized based on the definitions of different types of income and the different baskets at the U.S. shareholder level. And so there really is no look through for those amounts. Right. It's just a fundamentally different way to think Very of different. a different way to think of what we've always been referred to as the 904D look through yeah, rules. Definitely. So you had mentioned this with, 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 let's talk a little bit about the branches too. So we don't, there's no branch basket look through. And they've also given us some very specific rules as far as how that branch income is going to be defined, sort of effectively using 987 principles. Mm-hmm. And then they've added a 482 element and 367D now applies on transfers to the branches, which is hard for me to get my head around, <laughs> um, but seems very complicated. So, you know, give us some of the highlights on on the branch stuff because it's fascinating. So we didn't have a lot of legislative history on the branch basket. So really the regs have defined um, what is supposed to be in the branch basket or how you calculate branch basket income. And they, they do that. It can only be income of a QBU owned by a U.S. person. So that's why you can't have a branch basket at a CFC level. And why you can't have look through if we had look through like we used to have two mm. branch basket on a payment from a CFC. Um, but basically, you're looking at a QBU, a qualified business unit, um, and the the income that it earns. So you're looking for it to its kind of statutory books and records, and you're adjusting that for U.S. tax principles, and that may mean reversing out disregarded transactions or adjusting the depreciation method, just like you would do to calculate U.S. taxable income in the U.S. Yeah. So for example, if it was a branch with with the relationship with the head office, whether you were selling goods or performing services, if those were otherwise disregarded, you know, when you would look at the P&L of the branch, it would obviously show that from a local country perspective, whether mm-hmm. it's checked or whatever. Um, but then the because if it was a disregarded entity for U.S. tax purposes, then that would come out. Right. And so what the branch basket rules do then, once you have that you know, U.S. tax principle adjusted amount, is it then reverses out the disregarded payments and makes them regarded for branch tax purposes or branch basket purposes. And so it's, it's a little bit of a paradigm shift, I think, that mm-hmm. they're trying to determine how much of the income between the head office and the branch should be in the branch basket, essentially, is what they're trying to mm-hmm. do. So if you have like cost plus payments, that are made to the branch that would be disregarded under general U.S. tax principles, those get regarded for purposes of calculating the income in the branch basket. And it's really to separate out, again, the portion of the you know service income, for example, that's earned from a third-party contract that should be in the branch basket. You know, because they're really trying to come up with this fully baked U.S. taxable income concept at the branch mm-hmm. that 367 now applies if there are a, what would otherwise be a disregarded transaction. Right. So how, to explain how that works. 
So it it's basically treated almost like a, well, to apply 37D, you've got to have like an outbound transfer to a foreign corporation. And so it, it treats the branch essentially like a foreign corporation for outbound transfers of IP and oddly transfers of IP to the domestic owner. So it seems to go both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not sure how the rule applies the other way, but um, it posits uh, that you then generate a 367D amount when you have these transfers that would have been disregarded generally before this rule from a U.S. tax perspective. Yeah, people are going to keep a very close eye on branches and transactions between the branches under this new regime. And I would also posit that a lot of the branches, oftentimes service companies, or whatever the case may be, are in relatively high tax jurisdictions. So I'm speculating that there will be a lot of U.S. taxpayers with excess credits in the branch basket yes. with the you know with the new regime. And I guess the other thing to point out here is you're going to have parallel computations, right? You're going to have a computation for U.S. taxable income purposes where you don't regard these disregarded transactions. You're going to have a branch basket computation. And then if you have a loss in the branch, you're going to have a dual consolidated loss computation that disregards the disregarded transactions. So there's going to be a lot of computations with respect to the one entity that are for different purposes. Right. Similar to at our CFC level where we're going to have our tested income and we're going to have our earnings and profits. Yes. And then we're going to have to do our separate 163J computations by CFC, rolling all of those up, which then will get reduced the tested income computation, but not the E&P computation. There are a lot of computations that are going to need to, to take place as a result of these new regimes. Yes. And there are a lot of the... Uh, detail that they've added in the regulations with respect to interest expense apportionment and i think we're going to talk about deemed paid credits and how you calculate those is is added a lot of tracking and tracing that you have to do with respect to amounts of pti or characterizing stock that you didn't have to do really in the past and now you've got to separate everything out into these different subcategories and track it going forward yeah so let's let's dive in there to section 960 so Another really fundamental shift with respect to how foreign tax credits are determined on an annual basis as a result of deemed distributions now under guilty, but what would have historically been under subpart F or 956, for example. And so historically, we would have said, well, what are the amount, the proportionate amount of credits that you had at a CFC that was making either that had a subpart F inclusion or a 956, you would just, you know, do it the proportional amount based on the taxes and the earnings and profits. And so now with the new statutory language, it's now uh, taxes attributable to the particular income. Properly attributable. Properly. Properly attributable. It's being proper that I sometimes struggle with. Properly attributable to. Thank you. And so the question that we've asked is, well, what does that mean? Like what are, what are taxes properly attributable to? So how did they, they gave us this other computation to determine that. So how, how did they go about doing that? So I think the big fear was that you'd have to effectively trace taxes to the income, which you can imagine would be very impractical for most taxpayers. And so what they've done is they have approached it a little bit more mechanically um, in order to not have that direct kind of factual tracing of taxes to the income. 
Um, and what you're supposed to do is at the CFC level, you separate out your gross income and deductions for US tax purposes into what they're calling income groupings. And so those are broadly like subpart F income and all the different, different types of subpart F and tested income grouping. And then there's this residual income grouping, which is basically 245 cap A mm -hmm. earnings, as you said, that if they get paid up, you'll get a 245 cap A DRD with respect mm -hmm. to those earnings. Um, and then once you've done that kind of US calculation, aside from your tax expense and your credits, you do another calculation based on foreign taxable income and assign the credits to the different income groupings based on what income is included in the foreign tax base and how it's grouped for for U.S. tax purposes, mm -hmm. and so on that basis, once it's once the taxes are assigned to an income grouping, then you apply a fairly mechanical fraction to determine the amount that are properly attributable to your tested income inclusion or guilty inclusion or subpart F inclusion that you're picking up at the U.S. shareholder level. So and th so this does not. I mean, this really is not the. A whole idea of pooling and credits being able to carry forward is just done, right? It's and, it's done. I mean, you can think about the income groupings as kind of a mini pooling, um, but but of the current year, but taxes, of the current year taxes. Right. So you're not getting kind of the multi-year effective rate um, and blending that you did under prior calculations. That's for sure. And any taxes that get allocated to the residual income grouping, those are just gone. You don't get those as credits, right? And so talk about 956, right? So man, lots of discussion and confusion with respect to 956. We thought, I mean, with originally before even the TCJA came out, we thought that 956 was going to be repealed and then it seemed to sneak back in at the 11th hour. And then we got, um, you know, some guidance a few weeks ago that told us, well, you can elect not to apply 956 which a number of companies were very excited about with mm -hmm. thinking about global pooling and just complexity. And then, you know, thinking through, well, if 956 is going to, if you're going to not apply 956, you have to manage your 245 cap a, and you need to go through that issue. We don't even have those regs yet. So we're not really sure whether that, how comfortable that will apply. So what did they tell us about when we have 956 inclusions and with the foreign tax credits that would come with the 956 inclusion, should a company end up with an investment in us property? So you don't get a credit. So I guess that's the short story of it. Um, you get a 960A credit if you have an item of income. You know, you get the taxes properly attributable to that item of income under 960. And basically what they said is that um, a 956 inclusion is not an item of income because it's a, it could be a multi-year inclusion. And so on that basis, it isn't, you know, in the statutory language for a 960 credit. Um, you know, there's questions about, is that the right interpretation? Mm -hmm. But uh, right now, under the proposed regs as they're written, you don't get a credit. So one of the other things that I thought was very interesting is the new acronym of PTAPs. And our new, pre new. I mean, how many categories did that? Was it 13 or? It's 10 right now, but they definitely left some off. So I think. So talk about this. So this is previously taxed income. And so we've got all this various type. We've got the. 960, we've got the 965 PTI, maybe we have old subpart F PTI. I mean, there's all kinds of PTI floating around and what will be floating around. So I think we're still, we're still hopefully going to get some more guidance on those particular regs, but we got a little window into the new system. 
Yeah, we didn't get ordering rules for PTI, but we definitely got the architecture of how they're going to separate out the different groups of, of PTAP. Somebody lost that bat. They're no longer calling it PTI. It's previously taxed earnings and profit. I am going to continue to call it PTI. It's shorter. It um, is. So each of these groups, I think, is really trying to track um, different types of, of PTAP that um, you might have haircut taxes on. You might have a reduced 986C amount. And so that's really what they're trying to do by separating out the different PTAP accounts by year. So you're going to have it by year and by CFC. And then as you pay it up the chain, you'll have reductions to the PTAP accounts at the payor and increases at the payee. A lot of U.S. taxpayers are anxiously awaiting for these rules because there's cash looking to come back. And I know we keep getting questions of like, what do you, which ones do you apply 96C to? Like right. what order from an FX perspective? So. And they, they are coming out with a notice, they have said, on how to calculate 986C because um, there's a whole question because of the haircut that you get for 965A that's distributed um, on the 986C gain or loss. And then you get no 96C gain or loss right on 965B PTI. How do you calculate that? Because it's we've never calculated as a tracing, which is basically what that rule uh, requires that you do. So hopefully this notice will give us some guidance on, with respect to that. And if we're adding to our list of things that CFCs are going to need to compute now, the, the various PTEP categories in addition to our tested income and in addition to the 163J and in addition to our earnings and profits, um, that's going to be on the, the list as well. Maybe the last thing, and this is something I, you know, we've worked on over the years, some changes to the base and timing differences. And without getting sort of too deep into that, can you, can you, yeah, I think you always do a great job explaining what is a timing difference and what is a base difference? Cause I know kind of when I was growing up, like that was always something hard, difficult for me to get my head around. Right. So a timing difference, at least in the FTC world, is uh, right. income that's recognized for U.S. purposes at a different time than it's recognized for foreign tax purposes. So you may have, for foreign tax purposes, picked up 100 of interest income, but for U.S. and you're taxed on that. Mm -hmm. And for U.S. tax purposes, uh, you might not pick it up for two years. And so you have this timing difference. You have taxes that are paid. How do you basket those? And really, the timing difference rules are to basket those taxes in the same category of income that you would have basketed had the income been earned from a U.S. perspective in that same year. So that's the timing difference. But we also have base differences. We have um, amounts that are recognized for foreign tax purposes that we pay, that you pay tax on that are never recognized for U.S. tax purposes. And the rules that have been put in the regs to kind of flesh out what is a base or timing difference, um, I don't think they're a huge change. They're really just putting in the reg, I think, what the IRS's position has been, um, that base differences are very rare. Um, and they give the example in the reg now of insurance proceeds or gifts, um, so very rare. And that really everything is a timing difference. And that's been the IRS's position. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it'll be interesting because there has definitely been some commentary out there with respect to when you have a base difference, what basket does that go in? The 904 statute did not appear to have been updated when they put in the TCJA. So it says that it goes into the branch basket. And I feel like Treasury didn't, you know, hedged its bets as far as what might ultimately happen with that statutory language and what credits or what basket those credits go in. Right. The regged right now, it used to say that the base difference taxes went into the general basket basket. 
Um, now the reg has been changed to just cite to the statutory provision that has this, you know, glitch. And so they didn't really take it on. Um, I think it is reflective of the fact that it is the statute and they, they have to follow that, but also I think reflective of the fact that they think base differences are pretty rare. Right. So that, that as a particular tax nerd will be one to see how that ends up shaking out. So we'll leave it at that. A great description of the base versus timing difference. You always do a great job with that. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of cross-border tax talks. Thanks again to Elizabeth Nelson, a partner in PwC's international tax practice. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's international tax services leader in the U.S. You can follow me on Twitter at ExportTax and LinkedIn at Doug McConey. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross Border Tax Talks podcast. Mm-hmm.